Hi there, and lovely to have you along with me, Cleon and Ianlon, for another Spoken Stories podcast. Rose has her arms out. Jack, I'm flying. I knew if we'd been at home watching the film with Carl, Saoirse's nose would have already been wrinkled. She'd be sticking her finger in her mouth pretending to gag. But here, in the anonymous dark of the cinema, her sceptical eyebrows had disappeared. Her face glowed with hope. Claire had been so busy finding the little germ, and it was going to be all over the newspapers and the radio that Claire Locke from Kilfahi had been the one to recognise the little germ. Jackie, a voice asked from just beyond his right shoulder. The sound of it singing up at him in a fluty jab. It's never Jackie Dwyer, is it? He stopped and half turned. Girls in green uniforms stepping back to let them through. Some of them more like women. One stuck her chest out as if she thought it was funny. The stare of all eyes on her. Up and down. I'll take five two-euro coins, she added. You have a fine stack of them there beside the clock. This collection of stories is called Creatures of the Earth, after the title of a story and a collection of stories by John McGahern. Each episode features a new story by a writer who accepted an invitation to contribute a story that started out by considering what creatures of the earth might conjure up for them and where it might take them in a story of their own. Previously, Spoken Stories Independence had writers think about what independence could mean, how it could present itself in a new story today, a hundred years after Ireland's War of Independence. John McGarren often referred to the fact that his own parents had experienced at first hand its turbulence, its repercussions, and how McGarren's own generation was the first born into independent Ireland. And so, in its way, Spoken Stories Creatures of the Earth is a natural expansion on its predecessor, Spoken Stories Independence. Together, they are a creative contribution to Ireland's decade of centenaries. Together, they illustrate how variously ideas can be interpreted. Here now is Lisa McInerney on her story, Law of the Instrument. What I react to in McGarren's stories, like those in Creatures of the Earth, is the sense of fullness in the Irish everyday, by which I mean the good, the bad and the ugly. Specifically, McGarren's recognition of a kind of brusque horror, what was hopeless and inevitable and cyclical, which adds, I think, a sense of the mythic to the mundane. With Law of the Instrument, I wanted to speak to that sense of bitter drama, a sort of eternal battle between self and soil and family. Here a young man has dug his heels into an incessant conflict with his father, stopping himself from leaving because he is so committed to that conflict. Lisa McInerney And now Stephen O'Leary reads Law of the Instrument by Lisa McInerney. My father comes into my bedroom and tells me that someone's outside. I go up on my elbows. The light from the bulb on the landing hits me in the face so my father catches the door and brings it to half shut. Rooting around, he goes on. I can hear them. Bring the guards then. 
I warned, he says, ring the fucking guards. What do you want me to do about it? I can't go out there on my own. Jesus Christ, I say, and bitterly. Grand. I wait for him to leave the room before I get out of bed. I don't want my father to see me waking, or out of breath, undressed, in pain or a temper. States of exposure in which my substance is most easily evaluated. I don't want my father to know me, nor to know things about himself through me. I check my phone and there's a message from Emmett, three hours old. Are you up? And though it's too late to respond, I respond anyway. <laughs> well, I fucking am now. I go down and out the back door and straight away I know there's no one in the yard. My father's moving too surely, so it's obvious that he's lax about what he might find. For a man to be so lax is a sign of bravery. Or cockiness, which is the bravery of the short-sighted. My father isn't brave. No, my father isn't brave. He looks into both sheds, then stands in the middle of the yard and watches me. I shake my head at him. There is no one skulking, and I know why he's pretending there is. My mother will be twenty years dead next Tuesday. I've been watching the anniversary loom on him. He's assessing distractions. And the funny thing is it might not even be noted. My mother was from Feathered, forty miles away. But there are none of our people around here. My father is a canny man, but not canny enough to know when he's only drawing attention to himself. Go on away to bed, I tell him. There's no one here. Beyond the sheds, the countryside is black as tar. And with the hour and the whipping breeze, it feels like the yard is an island in a great void. No one but you and me, I say. And so badly I want it to be untrue. I was two when my father solicited the brute from Port Leash to kill my mother. I was four when my father was convicted and twelve when they let him out. I was so young when it happened that it's seen as unjust to hold it against him. Pure bitch, that one, is how it's made sense of. Sure, she drove him to it. I've read the court reports and archived tabloids. I've heard it from the pious and the petty. My father is a diffident creature, a beast of burden. He has a morose face and a half-moon belly. He goes around in dark jeans and plain jumpers, nodding at the neighbours. On occasion he has a point in one of two locals. He's a prick and a coward. He's officially a prick and a coward. His is a state-appointed personality. My father says to Gerard Rowan and Maliki Kyo outside Kennedy's, I'd lads skulking around the yard at three in the morning. And they ask who was it, and he replies, Don't you know well who it was? And indeed, it turns out they know well who it was. Even though it was no one. Only what was sparked in the dead of the night because he can't sleep. My father. Nor should he be allowed to. Sure, don't you know well who it was? I mutter later when my father is turning the chops, washing up, watching telly. Each time he asks if I said something. Each time I tell him he's hearing things. That night he doesn't come into my room, but three times I wake, thinking that he has.
Three times I hear my door open and I see him standing at the foot of the bed. Three times I struggle to sit up and realise then that the effort only opened my eyes. The third time I wake, I vow that if I dream again I will dream not of my father coming into my room, but of the road outside Clock Jordan and the house in which that young couple found my mother. I will go there in my shadow state, and I will wait and see what can be done. Emmett pours us both a measure of powers in his mother's kitchen. It's Saturday night in his mother's house, as are his sisters, though the youngest is fifteen in a head case and his mother will beat the head off him if she finds out he's covering for her. He's in a watermelon coloured t-shirt and white jeans. He has a shock of silver hair. Bleached and died to hide the fact that it was going that way anyway. It needs maintenance. And if my father or his pals knew how much maintenance, I wonder what they'd say. It used to be that men like my father would get roiled over lads like Emmett to the point of paralysis. The impotence of violent thought. But times have changed. My mother never saw these changes. Nor did she get the benefit of any hypothesis about violent thought building to paralysis because that's not the way it went with her. And every time I think I have a handle on the way people carry on, what happened to her contradicts me. I tell Emmett, my father says there was lads trying to rob us the other night. Your father says this, but you don't say this, he notes. And I wish he had replied instead with something simple. That clown, that gobshite of a man. It would have been a kindness, but despite what he'd tell you himself, there's balls all kindness in Emmett. It'll be twenty years this year, I say. Right, right. And watch him now try to make trouble for itinerants or poles or whoever, because he thinks that'll take everyone's mind off it. Well, I should take your mind off it too. We get in the twin cam and drive back to mine. To the left of the sheds is a wide space, dirt loosened by the past damp days. We go diffing. We fuck with the physics of the place. We knock our shoulders against the car door and wrench the steering wheel. We expose our gums and snarl. Gravity's drag is key is what feels best. We take turns pulling doughnuts and filming from the flat roof of the smaller shed. My father's off spinning lies in the pub with no say in what we do or how we do it. The movies we make are shaky and ruined by our skitting, but none of the movies we make are for sharing. We assess the patterns we've made, sitting on the bonnet. Some nights we do this out in the roads with the other lads, or the car parks we can get into. Burn rubber, photograph and document and congratulate each other. We stand on the roof of the car, we throw bottles in the hedges, we scatter fag butts, we piss in the tussocks. You could say we're making our mark on the place, only rubbish will be stamped into the dirt, tyre marks will fade. Tonight's distraction recedes as well. There were no visitors, I say. Only my father's guilty conscience. Emmett says, To a stressed mind, a settling house is haunted, and every man on the road is the devil, and a gust at the window is something queer trying to get in. He asks if it isn't me who's on edge with the approach of the anniversary. If it isn't best if I left, they're not being a hope in hell that my father and I might trash it out, and no chance of my father deciding to leave. Not when he's forgiven here and obliged to falsify a backstory anywhere else. 
Emmett heaves a sigh, like he's a weary teacher instead of a sacked hairdresser, like the voice of reason instead of a 22-year-old lauded only by council estate mammies who want their colours done on the cheap. He wants me to infer that we should run away together. <laughs> Wouldn't we look the shit? Doing the rounds in Dublin or in London. Him dressing me in the same skinny blazers and cropped chinos he wastes his dole on. Me, with a trilling family history he could divulge in smoking areas to some chicken hawk chancer or fruit fly. On cue, he asks, do you not think you're wasted around here? And you equally, I suppose. He shrugs. This is the only place I'm worth anything. This is my land you're standing on, I stamp. Sell it, he says. We'll go to Fiji. When it comes to me, I'll make it right again. Exercise the place. Me arse, Emmett says. That you'd even try. The brute from Port Leash said that my father knew he had money problems. I'd pay to be rid of Deirdre, my father said. She says she'll take the land and leave me destitute and I've parents getting on. She'll take the child. I'd pay good money. Her body was found four days after she was killed in the derelict house outside Clock Jordan. It was a young couple that found her and it seems the same ease of access to the property that they had was what had appealed to the Bruce, for he was caught easy enough. I think often of that young couple. I think they must have been used to that derelict house. It must have been the site of their dirtiest encounters. I think of how they reacted when they saw her, whether they tried to cover up what they themselves are at in such a lonesome place. They must have children of their own now, land and tumble-down marriages. She had been beaten with a hammer, my mother. My father said the brute owed him money and because my father was insistent, your man got it in his head to punish him. He said the brute was jealous of everything my father had. The land, the standing, the wife. He said the brute couldn't make anything of himself, so he decided to take apart my father. When I'm walking at night with a skinful. I think that the land around here is what damaged my father. That our town was once the site of some massacre or great treachery. Me and Emma can't make lasting marks, but that's not to say that such a thing has never been done. Maybe it's that the place is already laden. It's a mile and a half from my house to Emmett's estate and he offers to walk at home. Not a chance, I tell him. Who'd be waiting in the hedges to steal you away? You steal me away, he says. We'll cast a ring of salt so the fuckers can't follow us. That's not how salt works. All we'd be doing is protecting the fuckers from us. As my car turns into his estate, he says, I'm worried about you. No fear of me. It's not going to get any better, Emmett says. How old is he, your father? He's not dying any time soon. Are you going to wait on that land until you're his age? If I went, would that not be to suit you? Somewhere swanky is where you want to be and you can't afford to do it by yourself. Is that what you think? I'm after your money. You were gone awful cold for a while. Then Maraid sacked you and you're all about me again. That's some accusation, he says in the end. 
But you wouldn't know that, because what you think is normal is anything but normal. That I don't experience normal often means I've memorised the shape of it. Like a neglected child wanting sugar. Like a lonely man with one hand pressed to his computer screen. We sit until our breathing synchronises. I think we might both be lulled by how our chests are moving in time. But as I go to take his hand, he opens the door and says, I'll learn one day to stay the fuck away from you, Owen. And I say, you will, you will. And this not the response he wants at all. Emmett drinks Powers because he thinks he likes it. But I know it's because Powers is his mother's drink. And he's learned to connect with her in feeble and delusional ways. It's the same delusion he employs with me. I think often he tells himself he loves me. The morning comes in behind hanging fog. The world in gauze like skin burned and tender. When I come downstairs, my father says, I want to talk to you. And when I tell him that he can indulge himself, am I right here? He says, you were out making shit of the yard last night. I follow him out the back door. He shakes his jowls and points. He kicks the back tyres of the twin cam and opens the bonnet. Making shit of the car too, he says. Who says it was me? Can't I see the marks in the yard, Owen? Didn't Tom Kennedy tell me this morning? Engines roaring for hours. Making shit of your own car. I see nothing wrong with the car. Do you see something wrong with the fucking yard, do you? Sure couldn't that have been your visitors? Have you Tom Kennedy told you had lads skulking? Maybe they came back to go diffing in your yard. Oh, you're very fucking smart. I get that from my mother. My father's skin goes yellow. Either your adversaries were here pulling donuts on your land, I tell him, or you're hearing and seeing things because your conscience has you by the balls. Twentieth anniversary dawning and you're desperate for us all to think about anything but my mother. Tell me what it is. Blackguards are ghosts. My father doesn't know what to say or what to do with his hands. He closes his left over his right, shakes them out as if they're wet. You're some tool, I say. I make for the back door and as I open it, he takes hold of my arm. I shake him off and he grabs me again. I turn and I hit a box on him. It's not graceful, but it lands well. He sags off to the left. Wait there, I tell him. And he's still sagging when I return from the shed with a hammer I swing over my head. Brave man, Declan, I shout at him. And the gall he has to be weeping. Who says I didn't pay them? Declan. Hmm? The skulking vandals. Like the lad from Port Leash, who you said envied you so much it drove him mad. Is that not madness, Declan? That you think of yourself such a paragon you corrupt mortal men? Brave man? So you never needed to be brave in front of hammers. You hadn't the balls to hold on yourself. I let him cry and dodge me. I throw the hammer across the yard and go inside. When I first moved back into this house, at twelve, I used to go to sleep in my bed and wake up in the hot press, or the porch, or on the floor in the kitchen. The boy is stressed as shit, my father used to say. I don't know what to do with him. I used to think it was my mother's ghost that was moving me, not in a loving way, but to fuck with my father's head. 
because if her spirit lingered at all, what sort of a blow was it that I was back in the house as if nothing had ever happened? Wind whistling I don't take meaning from. Bad dreams nor sleepwalking either. A conscience though. Stress manifesting. That I believe in. Because without that there is nothing but tire marks and the scree of my father's worst decision. My mother's ghost is not my mother. Half two in the morning, my father paces in the yard. I sit up and the duvet shifts with me. I listen to my father's footsteps. I look the length of myself and imagine Emmett with me, turned on his side away from me. I imagine the slant of his neck on the pillow, the paleness of his back, and I try to see us as settlers in a wild land and not as twisted branches too close to the dirt. A notification on my phone. I conjured him. Not knowing normal, knowing only a world shaped by the wicked, I conjured him. His message says, Are you up? I go to the window, pull back the curtain and read the shadows thrown on the concrete, the sighs, the complaints. I read the bite in the coal as my father opens and closes and opens the back door. I pull on tracksuit bottoms and a t-shirt. At the top of the stairs, on the landing, I stop. My father snores in the room he once shared with my mother. A long moment I stop. I go back to my room and stand. Hand on the curtain, face to the door. My phone beeps again. Emmett says, I don't want your money. I want you to be safe. Take me away. I'll take you away, however you want to put it. I open the window, though I am frightened now. Or long frightened, maybe. Of cold and sighs and complaints. Have you come for him? My voice is brittle. You're under the wrong window. But I suppose it's not easy to navigate when you're dead twenty years. I hear scuffing. Hear feet dragged through dust. My heart could burst in my chest and I cannot see the hammer where it landed when I threw it. I need you, Emmett says. Owen, are you up? I conjured him. Well, what might I conjure from sites of massacre or great treachery? Where might I go in shadow states? My hands are shaking. My thumbs hardly touch the screen. I type, I hope to Christ not. I throw the phone onto the bed. I go down into the yard. There you heard Stephen O'Leary reading the story Law of the Instrument by Lisa McInerney. Next time, Takagoma by Belinda McKeown is read by Charlene McKenna. And you can enjoy the commissioned fiction of Spoken Stories 1 Independence, including those by Anne Enright, Owen McGillivrede, Neil Jordan, Daniel McLaughlin and more, as well as this new series of Spoken Stories 2, Creatures of the Earth, as they are broadcast on RTE Radio 1 and all available on rte.ie forward slash culture and wherever you get your podcasts. From me, Cleon and Ian Loon, thank you for listening. <laughs>